everyone, and welcome to our latest episode of On Retail.、Um, you're joining me, your host Georgia. We have Jake. Hello. And Mel, retail consultant here. Hi, Georgia.、Um, so today we will talk unicorns, not the magical creatures, but we'll talk about startups.、Um, in the first part of 2019, we saw a lot of startup retailer startups、um, that. Gained the status of unicorn, so they reached one、um, billion dollar valuation, which is incredible. So today we will discuss、um, some of those four startups、um, to see, to talk about their business model, to see the trends, and to see what retailers can actually learn from them. So I asked my guests to prepare something and. Talk about their favorite unicorn. Shall we start? Let's go Let's. for it. You start, Mel. What's your favorite unicorn of this first part of 2019? So my favorite is Rent the Runway.、Um, so this is a company that was founded in 2009 and achieved their unicorn status in March of this year.、Um, so、uh, what this company basically is is a really interesting.、Um, Industry disruptor in the sense that they ba- they basically allow you to rent clothes from them. So it started off as、um, renting kind of big fashion brands、um, dresses and things like that for special occasions.、Um, and then in 2016, they expanded to having an unlimited wardrobe. So the idea for this came from wanting a mixed work wardrobe,、um, and this is where they expanded into their customer base, which was beyond 20 to 30 year olds. Which and they were the people who were mainly using the dresses.、Um, and now it's expanding to other ages, to not just a work wardrobe, but actually loads of other、uh, different items of clothing. So I think that it's really interesting because they've gone into this dynamic ownership model, and that taps into the changing consumer behaviour patterns that we're seeing at the minute, especially around、uh, sustainability and wanting to reduce waste in terms of not buying something just once and wanting to、um, rewear it again and again. So it means that basically consumers are now able to rent some clothes that they want either for a special occasion or if they just want to mix up their wardrobe and. And they'll be able to then return it. And it's basically like you have an unlimited wardrobes because you keep them coming and then you send them back. Exactly. So always something new to wear. It's ideal. But I'll、uh, yeah. I'll see to you two on this question as the least fashionable in the room. <laughs> Would you rent your own clothes? So due to my own personal buying preferences. I probably wouldn't. <laughs> so it's a bit rogue that I've chosen them as my fave unicorn,、um, but I think because I buy a lot from secondhand shops and I choose to kind of invest and I rewear things, and、yeah. if I need to borrow things, I borrow it from my friends. But I mean, the main difference is that I prefer borrowing from my friends rather than prefer renting clothes, just because I like having that nice tactile、yeah. interaction、mm-hmm. with the clothing first,、yeah. um, which renting clothes I think doesn't provide.、Yeah. So I wouldn't, but I don't think that I shop in a very normal way anyway. <laughs>、yeah. I guess it's that what you said that tactile. Relationship you have with that clothes. So、yeah. if if it's an in store, if it's a store, I'm sure you would because you can go there and try it on and see if that's、mm. exactly what you want, and then you rent it and then give it back. 
So just because maybe it's online. Yeah. Well, what about if it was really convenient and, you know, the four seasons and just, mm. you know, the week before each season you had your, your latest clothes sent out for, for summer and you returned mm. your spring ones and then at the end of summer you gave your summer ones back and had your autumn ones. How would that would that work? And you you'd, I guess you'd need less wardrobe space and yeah. less, you know, less clothes mm. just to wear once and then put away for the next eight months. I guess I would do it for special occasions like weddings. Okay. Yeah. Um, where I just like end up not wearing the same the dress again. Yeah. But I, I don't think I would do it for daily essentials just because mm-hmm. I actually, you know, they're, I want them to be mine as well. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, exactly. It just depends on those purchasing behaviours. Yeah. Like if people like convenience and loads of things all the time, then it would work for them. If you yeah. like having things that are your own that can last, yeah. maybe not so much. I mean, if you're going to a gala every day, definitely. Not sure if one of in our room. That would be a dream lifestyle. What about you, Jake? <laughs> What's your favourite unicorn of the bunch? Um, so for me, the one that, that really stood out was Casper. So for those who don't know, they originated as an online mattress retailer, uh, gaining unicorn status in April of this year. Um, what we've really seen here is that growth from what was an, an online startup. You know, the stories of these guys burning eighty to hundred thousand dollars on their own credit cards to really get those mattresses shipped in and get out to customers. They saw their first year's growth smashed within two months, and and they've really seen that that kick on from there. But but there's a few things that really jump out for me here, and, and the first one is the kind of change of concept of of sleep and what what their approach has been there, and they've turned that into technology and a, and, a, and a real experience and you know a couple of years ago you probably have laughed at that the same way you laughed at delivery and uber and, and mm. now actually bringing technology to sleep is something that's really changed customers perception of that you know it's almost the same as the fever tree world with with gin you know there's 80 percent of tonic goes in your gin and tonic so why would you spend more on the gin is the kind of marketing there and i guess mm. with casper it's you know you spend eight to ten hours spend or more if you sleep, Georgia, maybe 12. But <laughs> Sometimes you spend I, I a lot of time on that months. mattress and actually there's a lot more thinking and a lot more um, tech that can go into that and really helping that, which I think is is really interesting. They've taken what is a fairly traditional industry and, and a dormant industry, which is um, ripe for disruption, and they've really applied that. And I guess the other key thing is this, this these digitally native vertical brands that we've seen, and Casper's another great example of that. Started as an online online retailer, and now they've brought into the stores. So yeah. there's been a lot of infamy around the stores of you can have 45 minutes nap in there they, for a small fee with some refreshments and some pajamas. You can return mattresses uh, after 100 days if you're not satisfied with your purchase. Um, and it's just really interesting to see this wider trend of stores not just being used as the, the kind of HQ for buying and selling, but actually as, as a wider engagement and awareness tool. Yeah. So the store is almost the the replica of the brand now, and, and it's not just where you go to buy things, but it's where it's almost like the, the mm. physical marketing mm. of somewhere. And, and it's really, really interesting to see a store do that. And I know they've got big plans to expand over the next two, three years, up to about 200 stores. So it's going to be great to see how they continue to, to innovate and really change that as well. Yeah. So why do you think Casper... Um, got to that unicorn status while we saw a lot of other competitors yeah. uh, doing with the same business model, like Eve Sleeps, for example. Yeah, um, yeah. How do you think Casper got to that level? So for me, it was it was they had a very clear view on what their brand was from an early stage, and then they really stuck with that. They described themselves 
the same as what Nike did to fitness and what Whole Foods did to organic food in there. They were very clear on that throughout and, they, and they've never really changed that. So that real kind of SME knowledge of, of sleep tech and, and that's something that's really brought out and, and that brand is epitomised across all their channels. You know, I had a quick look on their Twitter feed this morning and again, that's something that's won awards for its kind of engaging, insightful and slightly humorous content as well. So being really clear on what that brand is, confident that that's what consumers want and they're nailing it across all their channels, I think it's really great to see. I guess the challenge now is they want to kind of diversify their product range. So there's talks of kind of dog beds, night lights, bed frames, all these things. So how do you still remain, you know, that expert to consumers in mm-hmm. sleep tech whilst also diversifying into, you know, the made.com world yeah. and the other kind of um, more niche areas Um within kind of furniture and bedrooms, for example. I think the consumer centricity is very true for also another important unicorn, which is Glossier. Mm -hmm. Um, So for people that don't know Glossier, and, well, that's weird because they're everywhere, um, (laughs) they are a skincare and makeup brand that um, was founded by beauty blogger Emily Weiss. Um, It was, so the, the brand started off from a, blogger uh, from a blog mm-hmm. um, meaning that she had all that knowledge on what consumer really wanted and then launch her product and she has such a um, she knows her brand so well and that's what I think is very common with also the other unicorns um, that their branding is so clear and she's able to share it through her products and through her physical stores um, so what's different from other the other beauty brands that yeah. we are used to is the fact that the company's one-third just tech. So they're actually using technology so much to know their customer. And this is why they're launching such perfect and um, specific products because they know their customers so well and they know what they want. And they keep using this community that they have built online um, to discover actually what they want and nailing the, ne- the next product they launch. So every product they launch is just gets sold out in a second because they know the consumers actually really want it. Do you think that they're going to start trying to expand their customer base? I think that's a really interesting question. Um, so they're famous because of their millennial pink mm-hmm. um, and they actually know millennials very well. So I would be surprised if they now they would go and try and get generations at X, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, I think their their plan is to maybe expand more geographically before uh, expanding their customer base. Yeah, so we'll I, I, guess, I guess it's an interesting challenge. And again, I'm speaking for um, a makeup brand here, but having visited the store here in the US, uh, I think my colleague and I, were, we were both blown away by the kind of safe space and, and like you said Georgia it's recognising the uh, the anxiety that millennials and Gen Y have around their appearance mm-hmm. and designing that store around that safe space you know you can try it on you can wait 20 minutes see how it reacts with your skin get advice yeah. from experts and then buy it so it's a very no pressure safe space and I guess the question would be you know what is it that Generation X or above what are their anxieties and what are their things with their appearance that they're struggling with you know is it to look younger and look more fashionable or whatever it is so how does Glossier if they were going to go after that customer base how do they build a product and a and a service around you know those anxieties as well and and making it that safe space so I don't know the answer to that because I don't know what a 35 year old woman is 
necessarily anxious about. <laughs> Probably something quite different to maybe a, a generation X, generation Y. Um, but it's something that I'm sure could be answered by Glossier if they mm-hmm. did some thinking around it. So yeah, it'd be, be interesting. interesting to see. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So now that we've looked into the past unicorns, why don't we take a look at the new unicorns, the one that we think they will reach their status in this year? Um, do you want to start, Jake, maybe? Sure, yeah. So um, one that jumped out for me was one a startup in the US called Zola, uh, which is a wedding registry app. So probably outside the norm of maybe my personal tastes, uh, probably more to Mel's, uh, Mel's uh, <laughs> activities as she's planning a wedding. But for me, it really jumped out again at uh, understanding millennials and, and their behavior and their wants and needs. So there's there's always stuff in the news about how millennials are getting engaged later or getting married less and the anxiety around planning a wedding, etc. And what uh, Charlene Ma has kind of spotted here is is how to combine tech with that kind of traditional industry and a bit of a one-stop shop where you can go and you can plan your wedding, you can do all the registry, you can do it all online and, and through her application. So What's different is they have an enormous product assortment. So they have about 50,000 products uh, across 700 brands. So, you know, it's knocking the John Lewis gift registry out of the water a bit there. And and the difference, I guess, is, yes, you have your traditional Le Creuset's and all those things you might have normally, but also things like GoPro can be in there. You can pay cash through there or you can buy someone's flight ticket or pay into their honeymoon fund. So it's a bit of a catch-all there. And I think for, for the customer as well, what they have is a bit of like a tinder for gift registry so built on you know the usual product recommendation engine you swipe left to, to one thing you get personalized recommendations and you can add that to your registry so really interesting way of doing things and and it's really shook up the kind of wedding planning uh market in my opinion again it's another great example of a a digitally native vertical brand start online and now start to open pop-ups so for engagement season which i'm told is in december um, <laughs> i can uh validate that you can attest for yeah. that one yeah uh they opened a pop-up uh, in new york to, to really drive that customer into the store and again i guess it's yes there was some tech in store around 3d printers and all those things but again it's that engagement and awareness piece and educating them that there is an alternative out there to planning your wedding in your gift registry so again it's not traditional store of buying and selling in there but but how you really drive that awareness of your brand and again a different use of a store so i think they're currently valued at about 600 mil at the moment um, definitely one to watch and I think uh, knowing millennials myself and, and Mel planning mm-hmm. her wedding as well I think this is this is definitely one to watch for the next unicorn So I think that Zola's really interesting in terms of it being that one stop shop but there are so many app like wedding planning apps out there as well so for example I use with Joy, which is both an app as well as a website. So it's meant that I can build my own wedding website, can send out invites from that, manage the guest list through that, as well as all the guests can download the actual app. They'll be able to take pictures on the day, kind of upload it to that, and then we'll be able to print out a photo book or whatever that we want. Um, So I think it'll be interesting to see how Zola are trying to, are differentiating themselves from so many different wedding apps that are like with joy yeah because with joy is all for free and then it's all of the add-ons that they make their money from so uh, what do you think are the key kind of areas that zola is going to be excelling in i think i think the big the big one for them is the gift registry so i think it's quite a tricky thing for millennials to Mm. you know i've heard too many stories of you i think john lewis is the main one where you go around and you scan and all gets added to your gift registry but 
you know, like I said, that's your Le Creuset's and your toasters and your all those different things. Mm-hmm. But actually, what about the honeymoon fund? What about the house deposit fund? You know, what about all those different, different things that millennials are having to save for? And actually, do you want three different toasters and a microwave and <laughs> 54 wooden spoons? Or do you actually want a contribution to your house deposit? And, yeah. and how do you do that in a way that's not awkward, I think is is quite tricky for millennials. And I think, you know, there's something this morning around how millennials supposedly suffer from um, decision anxiety. So having to make too many choices in life, having to make too many decisions and actually, you know, struggling to actually get on with just normal life as well as mm. all these decisions. So I think this is the kind of response to that of, you know, making it really easy and, and making those kind of choices as easy as possible for you. Uh, and that kind of everything under one roof approach. So, yeah, I think it sounds all great. And I think we're going to continue to see those stores come out a little bit. But yeah, like you say, competition's rife in the market. Mm. So being able to find that differentiator is what's going to take them from 600 mil to a billion. But watch this space, I guess. I'm sure we'll see you a user of it soon. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> <laughs> what about email? What, what's the uh, startups you think will be a unicorn next? So for me, it's a company called Fair. So these were founded in 2017, and it's basically an online wholesale marketplace where the smaller independent retailers can buy really different, unique goods that you wouldn't be able to find in bigger shops and then stock them. But I think they've got a really compelling business model because they've tapped into this online marketplace that we've seen so many other bigger companies do where they basically match demand with supply, um, for example, Uber. But they've taken this really simple concept a step further because they use machine learning tech to make different product recommendations. Um, And in the future, they're going to be integrating with a company called Square, where they can then roll out different capabilities, which means that based on what customers have bought from the stores, they'll then make really um, apt product recommendations of what other potential items they'd be able to buy in. Um, But it's really good as well because it's low risk for the retailers. So once they've actually ordered it, it's almost like a try before you buy. So they've ordered a product and then they don't actually have to pay for it. Uh, until two months after they received it. Hmm. So uh, for all of these really smaller retailers that we're seeing so much more of, it'll enable them to create much more of a unique range of products that they have for customers to be able to come and buy. Wow, that's a very interesting business model. And I guess that would actually change the whole industry as well. And it would be really good for small and medium retailers to then expand with very interesting products. Yeah, I think it's really simplifying enable owners of these smaller shops to actually buy in the different products and that part of it where it can be really complex and really... Yeah, and I think it's great to see a B2B potential unicorn as well. You know, we spoke mm, a lot about B2C yeah. and actually those doing the legwork behind the scenes to help retailers deliver the best experiences and the best product availability. It's great to see them doing well as well. Yeah, I agree. Awesome. What about you, Gigi? Um, I So you guys went to the US and I looked into the East. Um, so I found this um, really interesting startup called Happy Sharing. It's a platform based in China, uh, which allows people and businesses to exchange goods and services. Um, and they get, then get reward with reward points. Then they can use those reward points to then share other goods and buy other goods. 
um, it's a mixture between a loyalty platform where you can collect points, and it's also great because of the trend of of sustainability. So it's not more about just being conscious of what you buy. It's also being conscious of what you have and what you need so that you can share it and you can exchange it for actually that you, something you need. So maybe a gift that you've never returned, that you don't really use it, mm. you can exchange it with something that you're actually looking for and you don't have to spend money, which is, I think it's a great innovation. It would be really interesting to see if they will expand West and if, well, a market like the UK will be interested to yeah. uh, mm. use it. Definitely. I think it's I think it's quite an interesting business model. And obviously you earn those points. So you spend those points on the platform, which is, yeah. you know, it's, it's keep locking in that loyalty. I guess Brits love a bit of a love a Brucey bonus as well. But actually, we want to be able to spend it on what we like. And we like to have that choice as well. So you see with the credit cards, the American Expresses of the world, those platforms mm. are enormous. You can pretty much buy anything from a car where you can rent a car, you can go on holiday, you can go to Pizza Express. It's all those different choices. So I think to be successful over here, you have to provide those consumers that choice. So I think it, I think it could work, and I love the sustainability of it and this kind of circular economy nature. It's just incentivizing customers to to want to spend those points with the with the right people. Yeah, yeah. I'll be curious to see whether the UK take to it if they need if they can use it to exchange goods as well. Yeah, because I mean this is quite a a big statement but I think that UK customers can be quite lazy when it comes to actually returning things and Mm. wanting to exchange things but so I don't know if they would take to something like this because I know that quite a lot of my friends if they get something that they don't want they tend to just be like oh I'll just hold on to it and Mm. then I'll give it to someone else or I'll do it but they wouldn't actually go and then proactive exactly yeah but maybe I'm just with a lazy group of friends (laughs) who knows knows? (laughs) who knows I guess we'll see how consumers preferences evolve in the next few years yeah um so we i think we saw very some very interesting trends looking at these startups definitely um um, so i think so one big trend that we saw is that uh, the majority of the founders of those startups are female which is always great to see in this industry um we saw um we saw the trend of sustainability playing a, a big part, especially for um, rent the runaway, uh, which I think we'll see more of it. Um, so we've seen that these brands started off with hero products and now they're expanding into being more like a lifestyle lifestyle brand. So, for example, Gossier started with four products and now it's been expanding so much. And also Casper now yeah. uh, started off with just mattresses and now mm-hmm. it's selling dog beds. And it's selling everything that is um, sleep, which is great. Yeah. Um, what the thing that come that is common for all of these brands is that they start off as online brands mainly, and then they open a store to um, well promote their brand even more, and they yeah. actually succeeded. Which is will be we'll see how this trend evolves in the next few months. Yeah. Um, so, what do you guys think? that established retailers can learn from these startups? Yeah, I think I think there's two or three things. And I guess, importantly, there's a lot of retailers out there who are never going to be billion-dollar unicorns. But that doesn't mean to say there aren't some things to learn from these companies for your more established or upcoming retailers. So I'll go with the classic consulting power of three. <laughs> uh, the first one... Uh, around use of stores so 
There was an interview with the Jules CFO this week, Mark Dench, who actually spoke around the KPIs that they now use with their stores. So when they open a store, they see about 5 to 10% e-commerce sales growth in that area. So what that says to me that that store is being used as something way more than just buying and selling and actually as a tool to to really expand the brand and the reach of of that retailer. So they take into account KPIs such as e-com sales, the ability to serve click and collect and the ability to serve online returns as well. So that role of the store is changing massively. So we've seen with Casper, with Mm. uh, Zola as well, that that store can now be used for a point of engagement, a point of brand, a point of marketing, education, awareness, but actually something a lot wider than just buying and selling. So really interesting to see. And I think retailers really have to consider the role of their store and and what else, what are the benefit they can use from that? So we've seen on the high street, you know, those retail is really struggling to be successful but I think that comes from that linear thinking of, of what that store is and actually now we need that out the box thinking of, of what else can we do with those stores to really drive that customer engagement. The second one is don't go necessarily hunting for disruption. Yes we've spoken about a lot of disruptors today but you know these are unique and now unicorns which the clues in the name there so don't go hunting for that. I think really staying true to, to who you are as a retailer is fundamental Primark is my favorite example of this and I'll continue to use it of, you know, they don't even have a transactional website. They know their customers, they know what they want and they build experiences and stores around that time after time. So don't go chasing for that disruption. Be really confident of who you are as a brand and how you serve your customers on a consistent basis. And leading into that one, number three is knowing your customers, know how they want to interact with you. You know, we've mentioned millennials today about Mm -hmm. the anxiety or, you know, maybe that Generation X, what what can Glossier do to serve them? But really knowing that and, and being able to provide that across all channels is essential for me. So that's my three lessons. Awesome. Well... That's a strong power of three. Yeah. <laughs> Long-winded, but strong. <laughs> um, so mine kind of taps in to all of the stuff that Jake said quite nicely, to be honest. So I think that it's all around listening to customers in terms of what they want, but then also doing the wider listening around the key trends that are happening at the minute. Um, so the main thing that's happening at the minute is sustainability, right? So uh, we've seen some really interesting things here with the unicorns in terms of the dynamic ownership model, um, in terms of loyalty schemes to try and encourage this behaviour and then the local product sourcing and production. Um, so for me, it's all about knowing knowing your customer, understanding what they want and making sure that you're giving them what they need. Great. Nice. Awesome. Thank you guys for joining me. And for our listener, thank you so much for listening. Keep an eye on our website uh, because next time we will talk about AI and the impact of AI in retail. Can't wait. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank Thank you. you.